uh, series today on delighting in Christ. So uh, I've been, just for my own soul, <laughs> I've been reading a book. Actually, I, I started reading this one. It's, uh, it's Communion with God by John Owen. And uh, John Owen is known for being difficult to read and kind of like long-winded on paper, like he, he long sentences, like whole paragraphs of sentences, and he's hard to work through. And so, you know, I, I was starting to read this one, Communion with God, John Owen is uh, by Puritan Paperbacks. Um, and so they, what they do is they shorten his sentences and they make him more understandable. They put him in uh, modern English, make him easy to read. And they do a really good job. They're really uh, faithful with their uh, translation, I guess you could say. Uh, so I was reading this, and it was just ministering to my heart. And uh, there was a certain point where he uh, just takes this tangent in the middle of a chapter. And he starts going through all these reasons uh, why we ought to, uh, in our communion with the triune God, uh, why we ought to want to uh, commune with Christ. He just goes through all this, this list. At least it's in a li- it was in a list form in here. And he starts going through this list of all the reasons why your heart as a Christian should want to uh, just be close to Christ and, and uh, fellowship with him, commune with him. And I was just so enjoying that session that I just pulled off um, my shelf. I have a series of uh, John Owen, the works of John Owen by Banner of Truth, and uh, I know I know that that book was abridged and taken from his main works, and these ones are unabridged. And this is just the uh, drinking right from the source here, uh, and and so I wanted to I wanted to get more than just that list. I knew that there was more behind it uh, because they shortened his, his wordings. Uh, and so I wanted to get more out of it just for my own soul, and so I did, and I went to where it is in here. And it ended up, it ends up, turns out actually being like uh, about 40, 50 pages of reasons why you as a Christian uh, should love the Lord, delight in Him, as if we need reasons to delight in Christ, right? But um, such is the heart of, of man, right? Such is our heart, even as believers. Haven't you experienced that? Where our, even our own hearts, having tasted and seen that the Lord is good, um, we get easily distracted and easily uh, accustomed and just used to Jesus. And he doesn't thrill the soul uh, at times, like he should, and and it's 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 just um, it, it is unfortunate, but it's a reality that uh, we need to be reminded and given reasons to delight in Christ. Uh, it shouldn't be that way, <laughs> right? Because he is so wonderful and so so lovely to our souls, but but that's our hearts, uh, and so. Uh, it was ministering to my soul, and so I hope that as we go through this, it will minister to yours as well. We're just going to go, um, we're just going to kind of follow along with John Owen, but uh, bring in some other scriptures that he doesn't bring in, and um, some some other applications maybe that are more personal to us um, today. Um, so, I want to begin our time as we uh, begin this series. I don't know how long it's going to be. It might be, you know, five, four or five weeks. It will probably be much longer than that. We're just going to not rush through these things. I think that would be good for us. So as we delight in Christ, the first thing that John Owen uh, reminds us is that we need to delight in his deity. Delight in his deity. And he brings us to... Uh, a few passages uh, to begin with, just to kind of remind ourselves of the, of the deity of Christ and to uh, uh, remind us that the, that deity is something that we should delight in. We should rejoice and be happy that 
This Jesus is truly and fully God. So he, he brings us first to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 begins with this. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, with a train of his robe filling the temple. And seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, uh, Isaiah here recounts this vision that he's given. And it, it's in the year of King Uzziah's death. It's in a year of great uncertainty uh, in the lives of God's people. Uh, they have gone from one king to the next, and it's been one disappointment to, to the next. Sounds familiar for our country, doesn't it? Right From one ruler to the next, and it just doesn't seem to be getting any better. And I don't know if that's where you're at this morning. Um, you know, when things are bleakest and when things are uh, difficult, especially around this time, the holidays, right? Um, we are often reminded of those who we don't have with us, those who have gone to be with the Lord before us, and we're reminded of uh, just the fallenness and the the emptiness of this world. Uh, it's in that setting of your heart and mind that God comes to you and He wants to give you a glimpse of, of Himself. And that's what He did with Isaiah. He gave him a glimpse, a vision of Himself. And notice where He is. He's on the throne. He's high and He's lifted up. He's sitting on, he's sat, he, he is sitting on his throne. It's a place of authority and power and exaltation. He's high and lifted up. He's lofty and exalted. He's set apart in his kingship, in his rulership, in his authority over all things. And he stays there. He is, he is seated there. It's not a temporary kingship. It's not a temporary kingdom of, of God that we are a part of. And the central focal point of our kingdom, of this kingdom that we are a part of as a people of God, is God himself. And he's there sitting on his throne, and the train of his robe is filling the temple, showing the, the immense splendor and grandeur of his rulership. It's not a short train of his robe. I mean, we, we know this uh, in, in modern times. Uh, we don't have kings and with, with robes or trains of robes today so much. But uh, when, when a woman gets married, she puts on a dress, her wedding dress, and one part of that dress that is incredibly important is the truth of that. Of the aisle. What people will see is this glorious train behind her. What it communicates is this uh, splendor, this, this magnificence of the bride. So it is with, with God here on the throne. The fact that his, the train of his robe fills the temple is telling us that there is, he has a splendor that is unlike any other splendor. He has this, there's this majesty to our king that sets him apart from all other kings and rulers of this world. And then we're given uh, this, this uh, he zooms out and, and he gives us this, this portrait, this picture of, this, of the scene. Seraphim stand above this one on the throne, each having six wings. And um, these with these wings of, the, of these angelic beings, 
It says, with two he covered his face because of the glory of the one who sits on the throne. I mean, imagine that. These are unfallen creatures. Unfallen, perfect beings. Not perfect in the sense of, in the way that God is perfect, but perfect in the sense of being unfallen, without a stain of sin. These are the angelic beings who were not of that legion that followed uh, Satan in his fall. These are the these are the angelic beings who stood uh, with God, you could say, who did not betray him. And these are the same angelic beings who, when they are manifest and when they show up in this world, what's the usual response of, of somebody in the Bible who sees an angel? Do we know? They fall down. They fall on their face. They, they, they collapse like dead men. So these angelic beings are, are, are majestic. They are incredibly powerful. They, in, they bring about awe and um, men are tempted to worship them. But even these angelic beings, even these ones have to cover their faces when they come face to face with the glory of God. They cover their face. With two, they cover their feet showing this humility, right? The, the, the feet of a creature, uh, the idea is there is this, the, the feet communicate creatureliness, createdness. Um, these angelic beings, though they are angelic, though they are majestic, they are creatures. They are created beings. And so they cover their feet, humbling themselves. It's a sign of humility. And then we see, verse 3, one calls out to the other. And they say, and, and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In all of scripture, there, are not, there is not another attribute of God that is repeated three times. R.C. Sproul's reminds us, right? Uh, that uh, in Scripture we don't see uh, righteous, 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 loving, 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 wrathful, 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 or faithful, faithful, faithful. But we do see holy, holy, holy. His holiness sets him apart. He is in a class all his own. There's nobody and nothing that can be compared to him. And it's enough in, its, in the very word, holy, it is enough for, one, for the angel to just declare, holy is Yahweh of hosts. That's enough. It communicates the truth. He set apart. But to, but to emphasize and to drive the point home beyond any shadow of a doubt and to uh, exclaim this truth to uh, the eternal heights of heaven, the angel declares it three times. He's holy, holy, holy. And the holiness of God, as one Puritan said, is the luster of God. If you think about it, his, um, his righteousness and his justice is a wonderful thing. We delight in the righteousness and the justice of God. Uh, his power, it brings uh, comfort to our hearts. The, the fact that God can and does do anything that his heart desires uh, inspires awe and worship in us, as well as comfort and peace. But it only generates that response in our hearts because his power is connected to his, uh, to his holiness. You see... 
What if his power was connected to someone who is not holy, not pure and undefiled, set apart from corruption? What if his power was not holy, not set apart? What if his power was just like our power, just a greater degree of human power? Then it wouldn't be much comfort, would it? It wouldn't be a cause of peace to us because we would be worried. What if he uses his power uh, and he just becomes impatient with me? And he uses his power to just wipe me out, or to blot me out. You see, the holiness of God is a, is a majestic thing. It, it, it is the, it, it's what makes his other attributes shine. Amen. Now, in response to this vision, this sight of the glory and the holiness of God... Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, uh, he answers God's call when God says, Who will go for us? Who will declare the truth to my people? And Isaiah responds in Isaiah 6, Here I am, Lord, send me. Right? That famous verse. Now, What's interesting, what's interesting is in response to Isaiah volunteering to go with the message of God to his people, this is what God says. Verse 9, he said, Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not know. So God is sending, God, what God does here, he sends Isaiah with this message of truth, this message of forgiveness and salvation in God. But as he tells the people of God this message, in the message is this condemnation. You're going to hear this truth, you're going to hear of the salvation of God, and you're going to keep on hearing, but you're not going to understand it. You're going to keep on seeing it, but you're not going to perceive. You're not going to know. And he says in verse 10, Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. What God does here is he sends Isaiah on a mission that on human terms is a mission of failure. He sends him to God's people and says, I'm going to expose you to the glory and the holiness and the goodness and the grace and the love of God so much that you become insensitive to it. Their ears will become dull, their eyes dim, and they will not see with their eyes, hear with their ears. They will not understand with their hearts and they will not return and be healed. This is the state of the heart of men. Without being regenerated by the grace of God, this is where we stand. For thousands of years, this has been the pattern of of people, and at times, the people of God, if we're not careful. But especially for the unsaved, this is what happens. They hear the message of the gospel but they become desensitized to it. And this is, this is nothing new. We see this pop up again in the Bible, in the New Testament, in John chapter 12. Even when Jesus Christ himself appears, uh, this, when Jesus Christ appears, the Son of God comes into this world and brings the true message, the full and complete revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the new covenant, even when he comes, that he was rejected. Right? He was rejected. He was was rejected to the uttermost, wasn't he? They killed him. They crucified him. 
And the author of the Gospel of John reminds us, this is nothing new. This is how it's always been. And he says in John 12, 39 to 41, for this reason they could not believe. Isn't that interesting? Man cannot believe. It's not that they um, just don't want to believe, though that's true. It's not that they haven't been convinced to believe. Why, are, why is your loved one still rejecting the truth? Well, of course, they don't want to believe, but also they cannot believe. Unless God changes someone's heart, they are incapable of placing their faith in Jesus Christ. Unless, he, unless they become born again, it is impossible for someone to see and enter the kingdom of God. This is nothing new. He says in verse 40, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and return and I heal them. Doesn't that sound familiar? Sounds like Isaiah 6, right? Now, for our purposes this morning, the next verse is incredibly important. Verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke about him. Now, who is the, who's, who's glory? Who's the his and who's the him? That's the question, isn't it? Well, Isaiah, excuse me, John 12, where this passage is found, is talking about Jesus Christ. And so what the author of this, what John is writing here, is he's telling us that remember back in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple? Remember that one about whom the angels declared holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts, the I am? Remember the one whose glory fills the earth? He has come and he is Jesus Christ. Oh Christian, you have a personal relationship with that one who sits on the throne. The God of Isaiah chapter 6 is the God who loves you and died for you. And the God who, he is the one who walks with you each day. Who cares for you and shepherds you. And this is, I mean, in the Gospel of John, this is exactly how he began his, his Gospel. Right? In John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We beheld his glory, Right? Uh, John 1.14 And the Word, who was in the beginning, who was, who was God and who was with God, that Word, or that one who is in Isaiah 6, that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You might walk uh, this, you might live this life, and you might think, you know, if I could just see what Isaiah saw in, in there in chapter 6. If I could just get a vision of God. If I could just see his glory. Then it would be enough for me. Then, then I would really be faithful. Then I would really be devoted to him. Then, then I would really have motivation to. Uh, kill my sin, then I, would, then I would really be on fire for God. If I could just see him. Well, John says, he became flesh, and you have beheld him. You've beheld him in his word. He clothed himself with humanity so that we could behold him. 
Have you beheld his glory, Christian? I trust that you would be reminded this morning that this Jesus of yours is the eternal God. Uh, John Owen. He says regarding this, The choicest saints have been afraid and amazed at the beauty of an angel. Remember Isaiah 6. And the stoutest sinners have trembled at the glory of one of, of, one of those creatures in a low appearance, representing but the back parts of their glory. Who yet themselves in their highest advancement do cover their faces at the presence of of our beloved because they are conscious of themselves of their utter disability to bear the rays of his glory you see he says those angels those angels who hid their faces were hiding their faces from Christ the son of God and this one from whom men hide their faces, from whom, excuse me, angels hid their faces. This one is your beloved. He is the beloved of your soul. He is your groom. And so we want to, I want to just spend some time this morning thinking about why is that delightful? Why is it sweet? to the Christian, that Jesus is God? Well, first of all, because if Christ is God, then he has a divine grace and compassion for us. If Christ is God, then his grace and compassion towards you is a divine grace and a divine compassion. John 3, 34 says, speaking of Jesus, He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. This is the testimony of John the Baptist speaking about Christ, the Messiah, saying that this one whom God has sent, the sent one of God, the Messiah, the Christ, speaks the words of God. And he says, we know this because he gives the Spirit without measure. That is, the Father has given the Son the Spirit without measure. That's what he's saying here. When the Father uh, anointed His Son, remember when He was baptized, when the Father anointed His Son with the Spirit, He anointed Him and filled Him without measure. Now this can only be true if Jesus is God. Christ was given the Spirit without measure, without limit, because he is God, because there is no limit to his capacity of the Spirit of God. Now, make this connection here. Between that and the passage in Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul is well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. Okay, so he's talking about the spirit there. And remember, the spirit that was given to Christ, the Holy Spirit, that was put upon him by God the Father, was done without measure. So an infinite and eternal 
and measureless endowment of the Holy Spirit was upon Christ. Therefore, everything that he does as a result of that is without measure. Notice, he will bring forth justice to the nations. There will be no limit, no, no measure to that. And I love this, verse 2 and 3. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. That's his meekness, his humility. And notice, where are you at, Christian, in here? A crushed reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will bring forth justice in truth. This promise, Christian, that if you are crushed and perplexed in heart, if your soul feels like uh, that flame of love for God, for Christ in your heart is faintly burning, just barely flickering, he will not extinguish you. Though your heart just barely loves him, he will not extinguish you. Though you go through trial, though your faith just at times barely is holding on, he will not break you. And that compassion, Christian, is a result of his being endowed by the Holy Spirit. And, and so there is no limit to this promise. There is no bounds to his compassion for you. All right. See, I knew this would happen. <laughs> I knew this would happen. <laughs> Did myself no favors here. Uh, John Owen says regarding this, goodness, how, how many highlights can you read? Um, it is not the grace of a creature, nor all the grace that can possibly at once dwell in a created nature that will serve us. We are, I love this, we are too indignant to be suited with such a supply. You're too rebellious, Christian, to have just a to have a savior who is just just has a little bit of grace, or at least just has a, a measurable capacity of grace. Be honest. There was a fullness of grace in the human nature of Christ, and we're going to talk. Um, Lord willing, when we get there, we're going to talk about delighting in his humanity, the humanity of Christ, that he sympathizes with us. He knows what you're going through. And that's sweet. It's a delight. But Owen says this, but when the conduit of his humanity is inseparably united to the infinite, inexhaustible fountain of the deity... Who can perceive its depths, the depths of his compassion and grace, the depths of how much he sympathizes with you and, and understands you? Uh, your, your spouse or your loved one or your dear friend can do that. But what makes it special with Christ is that is connected to the, by the conduit of his deity. His humanity is connected to his deity. Therefore, the source of his compassion is not just a source. The source is a source. 
water line hooked up to uh, a spring, the spring of, a, of, of, the, of the mountains, right? You get that fresh glacial uh, water that melts and, and goes through the mountain and it's purified on its travel and it picks up all the good minerals and things that, that are good for us and our bodies, right? Uh, the, the source is not the, 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 the spigot, you know, at the end of the hose, the source is the mountain. So it is with Christ. The, the, the source of all that you find in him, the, the grace and the compassion specifically, and we're going to talk about his love. But the source of these things are, are not human. It's divine. And therefore, there is no end to it. There is no bottom to his compassion for you. He loves you with a measureless and boundless love. Uh, I, I read this quote before, and it's worth reading again. John Owen says, On this ground, based on the, if this is true, it is, it, it is as if all the world should set themselves to drink free grace, mercy, and pardon, drawing water continually from the wells of salvation. If they should set themselves to draw from, from one single purpose, or excuse me, from one single promise, and it's as if, as if you could have an angel, he says, standing by and crying out, Drink, O oh my friends, yes, drink abundantly. Take so much grace and pardon as shall be abundantly sufficient for the world of sin, which is in each and every one of you. John Owen says, if you lined up all the sinners in this world, if you lined up just you, if you were in that line, to drink of the well of the salvation of Christ. To drink in the pardon and the forgiveness and the love and the grace and the compassion of Christ. And if you just had one verse in the Bible, one promise to go on, you could, John Owen says, you could go to that promise, you could go to that well and draw from Christ for an endless eternity. And you could have an angel standing right there cheering you on, saying, drink and drink and drink of his mercy for you. And don't stop until you're full. He says, they would not be able to sink the grace of the promise one hair's breadth. You wouldn't be able to put a dent in the grace and compassion of Christ if you drank your full. Christian, Drink full of this. Our trouble is that we just get a sip here and there. God wants you to drink full of his grace and his compassion. He says there is enough for millions of worlds in Christ. Because it, because it flows from an infinite bottomless fountain. Christian, Christ's infinite compassion, uh, not only is it a great comfort to us, but it even holds back the open shame and humiliation that comes with our sin. Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. Verse 4, do not be afraid, for you will not be put to shame. And do not feel dishonored, for you will not be humiliated. But you will forget the shame of your virginity and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. What does this mean? He's, it's, it's a prophecy given to Israel, the people of God, and we being grafted in, through Christ into the branch of Christ, the ultimate Israelite, uh, 
we draw on these promises, though these promises still stand for the people of Israel, we can, uh, as it were, uh, just like it says in the Gospels, we can, like a dog, uh, eat up the scraps that fall off the table. And one of those scraps is, is a promise like this, where God says, you do not be afraid, you will not be put to shame. Oh, think of all the shameful sins that you hide, that maybe not a soul knows about. Think of all the shame that comes with, with those thoughts of remembering your past life before Christ. And even as a believer, a follower of Christ, how you have dishonored him. And been like that one who forsook Christ and denied him three times on the night of his betrayal. Think what it would be like if at the end of your life God says, you know what, I'm going to make an example of you and I'm going to placard all of your sins and all of your shortcomings and all of your folly before the world and to show them what not to be like. The truth is, he could do that with each one of us, couldn't he? He can make an example of each one of us. But Christ says, do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. I will not disgrace you. You will not feel dishonored. You will not be humiliated, Christian. Oh, there, there are so many things to be humiliated about, aren't there, in our lives? God says, you don't have to worry about that. My patience and my love, my grace, my compassion will not run out on you. I'm not going to air your dirty laundry. I'm going to honor you, your beloved. I will not put you to open shame. One note on the end of this verse, you will forget the shame of your virginity, the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. Uh, commentators differ on this. Uh, some would say he's talking about the shame of the, of the youth of Israel, that is the, their first sins when they were first delivered from Egypt. And, and then the later sins of their widowhood, you know, from, from you know, the other side of the shores of the Red Sea to Babylon, right? And everything in between, they've been marked by sin. And God promises to not uh, humiliate them for all of their rebellion. That's one way to take this. Also, you could take this as... Uh, in the ancient world, virginity and widowhood are causes for shame if it goes too long. Uh, it, it, it's uh, being um, an old virgin or being uh, a uh, a widow who has no one to no family to care for you. Uh, that was a mark of shame, uh, especially in the biblical times of the Old Testament. And so the idea here is this, um, is this um, barrenness and this aloneness, this forsakenness. Uh, he, God promises Israel and God promises his people, you will not be forsaken. Uh, the discipline that he's placed upon you because of your sin, because he does discipline us. He doesn't shame us, but he does discipline us, doesn't he? But he says, you know, you're going to forget that one day. The idea is when you are wedded to Christ in heaven, all of those past sins and the discipline that came with it, you're not going to just hang your head in shame and dishonor and reproach. Those will be long forgotten. You will be filled with joy and bliss in heaven. There will be no humiliation, dishonor, or shame there. One last quote from Owen. 
before we move on to the next aspect to delight in. He says, this infiniteness of grace, this infiniteness of grace, regarding its spring and fountain, will answer all objections that might hinder our souls from drawing near to communion with Him and from a free embracing of Him. He says, if you really understand the eternal and infinite grace of Christ, nothing will hold you back from being near to Him. You will, you will not have a reason to recoil from Christ to uh, 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 removing yourself from Christ as if you need to discipline yourself before you can come back to Christ. He says, no, Christ's grace is infinite. And so you have no reason to not draw near to him as soon as possible. As a matter of fact, he says, his infinite grace is reason. It is the answer to why you ought to draw near to Christ. Amen. He says, will, will this not suit us in all our distresses? What is, I love this question, what is our finite guilt before the eternal grace of God in Christ? Think about that. You think that His grace is not up to the task for your sin? Do you think that He will stop loving you because of that sin? That's a finite sin. But His grace is eternal and infinite. That sin of yours comes from a finite source, you. But the grace in response comes from an infinite source, the Son of God. Show me the sinner, he says, show me the sinner that can spread his iniquities to the dimensions of his grace. Here is mercy enough for the greatest the oldest, the stubbornest sinner. <laughs> I like that. I like that. You can tell. He's a pastor. Uh, he's saying, I dare you to try and, 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 and spread out your sin and, and see if it can cover the grace of Christ. It can't. Okay, we need to keep going. Why else should you delight in the deity of Christ? Well, because of his divine love. And we're not going to finish this this morning. There's just no way. Uh, think about this truth, Christian. Uh, that is for us in John 15, verse 9, where Jesus says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. And then he has to command you, doesn't he? Abide in my love. What does it mean to abide in the love of Christ? It means to think of it often. It means to meditate on his love. It means to believe his love. It means to know of his love more and more. It means to live according to his love. That is, that it is a, an ongoing and daily influence on your thoughts and actions. The love of Christ ought to be an ongoing and daily influence 
of your thoughts and actions. Now, Jesus says here that his love is not a human love merely. He says, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Now, the love between God the Father and God the Son is, in, it is a divine love. It is a pure love. It is the love of God in its fullest sense. There's no, again, there's no limit and no end. There is nothing that it cannot conquer. There's nothing that can change it. Uh, again, Owen says it better than I can. He says, uh, Think if the love of Christ unto us were but the love of a mere man. That would be nice, but it would not be enough. He says, it would not be excellent, innocent, and glorious. It would, it would have to have a beginning. It would have to have an ending. And it would, have, it would possibly, there would be, um, perhaps he says, it could be uh, powerless to do something. If it was the mere love of a mere man, there would be limits, he says. Limits to its, uh, its uh, limits temporarily, limits in its ability to endure, and limits to what it can do for you. He says, the love of Christ in his human nature towards us is exceeding, intense, tender, precious, compassionate, and abundantly heightened by a sense of our miseries, feeling of our wants, experience of our temptations. All flowing from that rich stock of grace, pity, and compassion, which, which on purpose for our good and supply was bestowed on him. But yet this love, 